Hello, everyone, and welcome to Toronto Rock Total Access. I'm Mike Hancock, along with Colin Doyle. This is a very special edition of the podcast where we're going to be looking back at the last goal at the Gardens. We've got some unbelievable interviews lined up here with Joe Bowen, the voice of the Toronto Rock from day one, and Caleb Toth. But, uh, and, of course, we're going to be chatting with uh, this guy back on the pod here, Colin Doyle. Doyle, how you doing? I'm good, Mike. Uh, just you, me, and Sydney here, I guess, for the yeah. next few hours, eh? <laughs> yes, for those, uh, we're recording this on Zoom, and oddly enough, I do have a picture of Sydney Crosby uh, hanging behind me, so uh, in my living room at home. Surprise it's to good everyone. To, it's good to be home. back. It's good to be back. Uh, this is challenging times, you know, so everybody, it's, it's good to talk some lacrosse. It was hard to pass up an opportunity to talk about the 20th anniversary of this game and this goal and to have these two guests coming up uh it's exciting brings me back I was able to go back and watch the game so I could jog my memory it'd been some time but we'll talk about it yeah. in much more detail but you know you alluded to it off air what a game what a game yeah just uh when you look back it's one of those things where it's like this was maybe the best game ever you know, in NLL history, it's got to be up there in the top two. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know what tops this for the drama, the back and forth, the guys who played in this game, the setting, all the things that were involved in this game. I, I don't know how you if there's a better picture to be painted in, in the league's history. Yeah, we'll we'll get to it. But, you know, man, just starting with the guys that played in this game, like Hall of Famer after Hall of Famer after yeah. Hall of Famer. And uh, I'm very excited to talk about it. Like I said, I've never watched it with the idea of taking some notes for discussion. So this this will be interesting. I'm I'm interested to hear Caleb's take and kind of what where his memory is. And obviously, you know, Joe. I think since he does this for a living, will probably jog more memories when he speaks. But <laughs> it's going to make for a fantastic. Uh, I guess welcome back into the podcast world. Couldn't couldn't imagine talking about anything better in these kind of dreary times. Now, before we get into the games, what what have you been doing to to keep busy, keep sane? What have you been doing? Well, there's a little bit of work to be done kind of for work, but yep. it's all done from home, maybe an hour or so in the morning. But ultimately, get up, I play dad, then I play teacher, then I play coach with the girls, and then uh, you read, you, yeah. you find a new show to watch, uh, and then you repeat. Yeah. Like, I, I don't imagine my day looks much different than anybody else's. Um, great to spend time with the kids and the wife and, and be around. But, you know, it, it gets challenging. We're into week eight or the start of week eight for us, I think, next week. And But it's it's the new normal, so I guess you roll with it. But uh, we could be in a lot worse predicament for sure. How about you? What are you keeping busy with? Yeah, same thing. Uh, work's actually been pretty busy uh, with uh, putting content out, and we had our fan appreciation week last week with The Rock. There was a lot of stuff going on with that, and just uh, planning to keep fans engaged, and hopefully, uh, you know, getting the podcast going and kind of regular routine here every week or two with uh, an update as to what uh, guys are doing. But yeah, just trying to uh, you know keep everybody engaged, tuned in, and and fill in some of the void that people are uh, feeling, you know, without the game of lacrosse in their life, right? And we're trying to do our best to to keep that out there with the rock as much as possible. And 
like you, I'm finding a new show to watch all the time and uh, trying to dig into something new that uh, takes up a lot of the free time, I guess. Have you seen the first four episodes of the Michael Jordan thing? Yes, I have. And, you know, I feel like that could be a podcast in itself <laughs> to talk about. It's great, this. eh? Yeah, like, I, and, and I wonder if today, that's been my biggest thing, of course, you relate it to what you could ever do today with, with something like that and if it could be done and if players would talk that candidly about what was going on behind the scenes because I think I, that's been a big thing I've taken away from this is that these guys seem to be pretty brutally honest with, with how they were feeling, what was going on, who they hated, who they didn't like, like what they had to do to win and, you know, allowing Rodman to go on his little vacation there during the season, like all these things. Like, I don't know if guys would talk that candidly about that now in other professional sports. And I, I don't know. I, it's, it's been awesome. It's been pretty it's cool. fascinating. Yeah. Uh, he's awesome. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, what's probably neat about it is everybody that's played sports to some degree kind of takes a team they were on and then envisions how it was built similarly, yeah. you know, and, you know, if we were to break this Jordan thing down or this, this last dance, the Bulls talk, and, and then you, 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 your mind immediately goes to like, man, that reminds me so much of a team I played on, you know, Rodman was this guy and Pippen was this guy and Jordan, you know, I think that's fascinating from my perspective. Uh, but yeah, the honesty, the honesty, uh, and, and, you know, I like how in each episode they've kind of broken somebody else's life down and yeah. you start to understand that like, you know, Pippen, Rodman, they didn't even play division one basketball. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, relative nobodies. And then, you know, just with the right mix, with the right leader, uh, they go on this, you know, ultimate dynasty that, you know, was right in the heart of, you know, our generation. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so it, it's fascinating to relive that. And I, I just love hearing Jordan. I, I could, I can't get enough of it. But that, like I said, we'll talk about that on another yeah, podcast. Yeah. We've got to dedicate <laughs> our time here to to the gardens and to 2000. So we'll do that. But uh, for sure, I hope everybody's safe um, and everybody's kind of buying in. And hopefully we can do this under different circumstances soon enough. Absolutely. So without any further ado, let's jump into our interviews. Uh, first, we'll uh, chat with the guy that scored the goal, Caleb Toth, and then we'll have Joe Bowen. So stick with us. An awesome episode coming up here at Toronto Rock Total Access as we remember the last goal at the Gardens. Ten seconds. He takes a look at the clock. Toth from outside. Doyle is up high and gets the ball. Doyle looking back to Toth. Shooting score! Welcome back to Toronto Rock Total Access. I'm Mike Hancock along with Colin Doyle and we are now uh, very pleased and honored to be joined by the man who scored the goal, the last goal at the Gardens, Caleb Toth. Caleb, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Mike. How are you? Not too bad. Really happy uh, that you could join us and uh, myself and Colin and go through what was uh, certainly a time that a lot of Toronto Rock fans look back very fondly on and uh, I'm sure you guys share some uh, great memories uh, as well from that event. But 
I want to kind of go back first to how you became a Toronto Rock in general. And, you know, you were drafted the 1998 draft, but didn't come and play lacrosse right away. Uh, maybe take us back through that, where you were at with your hockey career at that point and, and kind of why you paused your, uh, the beginning of your professional career. Uh, well, yeah, I was drafted in 98. Uh, I committed to go to the East. Well, I signed the contract with the East Coast League with the Baton Rouge Kingfish. Uh, then I got offered a tryout with the uh, Cleveland Lumberjacks, the IHL. Uh, so I went out there. Um, that is when I got drafted is when I was out there because uh, their season started a little bit before. And so, uh, you know, I never had the opportunity really to to make the choice to play lacrosse or hockey. And so I, uh, I found out I got drafted um, when I was down in the States. Um, thought it was pretty cool. Uh, didn't really know much about the professional lacrosse league at that time. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just, uh, you know, I, I committed to hockey, so I was just going to finish out my hockey. And then, uh, the way that my hockey career ended, uh, kind of pushed me towards the cross and, and I ended up, uh, coming out in, uh, in 99, uh, 2000 to play for the rock. So Caleb, how old were you then? Oh uh, God, I was 20, 21, I think. Had you finished your junior A career? Uh, yes. Yeah. 90, 98 was my last year, uh, playing junior. Uh, so that would have been my 20-year-old year, yeah. So I would have been 20. I or gotta, just turned 21. I was thinking about this yesterday. We had quite a crew from those Burnaby teams with us on those teams. Help me out. Yourself, Brad Darren. Uh, Brad Darren, Rory Graham. O'Connor. O'Connor, yeah. Did we miss uh, someone or is that it? God, now you got me thinking. Uh, I don't want to put gotta, I, I, I think we're missing somebody. I think there's one more. So do I. It'll come to me before the end of this, I promise. But I remember well, technically we wasn't uh, wasn't Cause the goalie on that '98 Burnaby team. Yeah, he, Cosmo was. Yeah. Yeah. But there was a, was it Olson? John Olson? Yes. Was he there too? Yes, it was. Yeah, there Johnny go. Olson was there. there I go. got us off topic, Mike. I'm sorry, no, but right. I, was, I saw <laughs> when it I was happens, watching the know. game. Like Rory played a significant part in that game. Like he was on the floor a ton. But I think yeah. I saw in the stands, I remember seeing Ocon, and then I started scrapping my brain to think, well, who else came from those great Burnaby teams? And then I got thinking. My, I digress. Well, <laughs> go back to you, Mike. Well, no, I actually wanted to talk about the, the Burnaby stuff a little bit too because that, se that 98 season, you guys won the Minto Cup, and I think you guys were 20 – what was I was looking at? I think 25-0 and 0 that season in BC. You won the Minto Cup four games to one over six nations. Just like that was, I think, in the midst of that – unbelievable Burnaby run like what was it like just playing for those teams and pretty much just running over everybody that summer especially you know what it was it was a great summer so that was the uh, 98 was my second year in Burnaby in 97 was my first year we went out there we went back uh, east for the Minto and we lost to Whitby and then in 2000 or sorry in 98 we beat Six Nations um, it was what four games to one they uh, they beat us in game three and that was our first loss of the season so it, uh, it well, we had two amazing teams, both in '97 and '98. Um, but '98, getting a chance to win a Minto um, in Burnaby, uh, just amazing. You know, that was my first championship for anything. Uh, you know, I played hockey for a number of years, and you know, maybe won a tournament in minor, but that was about it. But that Minto was the first significant, uh, you know, uh, championship that uh, that I was fortunate enough to win. And so then, then to roll it into this. This game we're about to talk about, you might have been the most famous lacrosse player in the world for a year or two. 
<laughs> maybe for about uh, six months, but uh, yeah, no, it was, uh, like I said, uh, you know, when you're a part of amazing teams, it's, uh, it's great to, uh, to be able to, you know, do something. And then, you know, I did an interview yesterday and, and uh, I said, uh, they, they asked me, you know, what, uh, what do you remember? And, and, you know, you, you remember the goal obviously, but a lot of times you remember the losses more than you remember the wins because the wins, you know, you forget cause you don't dwell, but when you, when you lose, you sit there and you dwell and, and the one loss uh, was that uh, 2001 to Philly when we lost the championship there. That, uh, you know, that still kind of bugs me, and still I still dwell on that more than I uh, I celebrate you, you the championship. And I both. Oh. <laughs> so going from uh, you know a rookie coming into a championship team uh, with the Rock, obviously the team had come off the 1999 championship. Coming into 2000, I was reading back through some old articles actually from the 2000 season and. Just talked a little bit about your journey going from a rookie and earning the trust of your teammates, which I thought was pretty interesting to go from, you know, a guy coming into a championship team to a guy who took the shot to win the team a championship. What was that journey like for you during the season and just earning the trust of your teammates? Uh, you know, it was, it was easy. Um, the guys were great. Uh, we had such a, a great team back then. They were no clicks guys welcome gn they you know they let you be a part they didn't you know shun the rookies to the shot side um you know they they welcomed me with open arms as long as you're willing to put in the effort and work uh you were a part of the team if if you weren't going to do that then you know obviously no one's going to want you around so i just you know shut up and did what they asked me to do and uh you know when i when i needed to say something i'd say something and, and it wasn't too often that i needed to we had such great leaderships uh, or leaders back then and Doyle, what do you remember about him walking in the door? Well, I remember being a little bit different, Caleb. I remember uh, <laughs> a, a, a brass, a brass know-it-all. If, if memory serves me, but no, I, I remember. Uh, you know, when you're coming off a championship, obviously things are already good, um, but change inevitably happens. And obviously, you know, a, a unique spot for Caleb to be in. But you know, we had heard, you know, about how good these guys were coming out of Burnaby and you know, just your competitive side, you want to see them earn it, right? If you're a guy that's already been there, you, you don't want to hear about anything. You want to, you want to see these guys earn it. And, you know, they all came in and earned their spot. And uh, obviously, you know, again, don't dwell on the goal. Look at the position we were in because of some of the stuff, you know, he was able to contribute. And the greatest asset of, those, of that team and then moving forward, aside from that Philly game we lost, we could hurt you in a lot of different ways. And, uh, you know, everybody had heard about his big outside shot and all this, but even in that game, I think he scored two other goals in tight. So he earned it, but I don't remember it the same way. I remember him having uh, quite a, quite an attitude on him, but it was yeah. good. He was confident. And I, I, I didn't make the mistake of mixing confidence with cockiness. So in the end, it worked out real nice. I do one point though, Caleb, I watched the game a couple of days ago and it baffled me and, I, I could have – tell me your thoughts on this, but I could I would have thought that we were on the floor every offensive shift. But looking back at it, we had 10 offensive players dressed that game. And essentially they were rolling one group out and then the next. And yeah, I, the game doesn't happen like that anymore. I mean, you're around it enough. I mean, in most cases there might be seven offensive players on the whole bench. You know, like – I don't remember it being like that, but literally they, they would run us out in groups of five. And if we got a repossession, the whole unit would change. 
Well, I, I honestly, I haven't watched the game in a long, long time. But, yeah, I do remember us having a lot more offensive players and being able to get some rest where, you know, back when we ended our career, there was like six offensive players and you were out there every shift. And, you know, you couldn't get a break, uh, you know. But, yeah, no, I, I remember I remember having a lot more offensive guys and then, you know, you'd be able to sit on the bench and, and watch an offense go and then talk about it and then get your shot to, to go out there. So, yeah, times, uh, times have certainly changed. Yeah, no doubt. I wish it had been like that towards the end of my career. I might still be playing. <laughs> I wouldn't have been. And I, uh, I got old quick. <laughs> Go ahead, Mike. Back to you. So, yeah, let's talk about the goal itself. And I want you guys each to kind of take us through um, what you guys remember about what was said in the timeout. And I know we've, we've talked before and lots of stories have been told about how the goal didn't – or the play didn't unfold uh, the way it was drawn up. But what do you guys remember – Hearing, thinking, all that kind of stuff while you guys were in the timeout and, uh, you know, with the crowd going crazy and essentially the game on the line here, the goalie coming out and a chance to win this thing. Well, I remember I remember the play was for Stroopy. Uh, I was supposed to give it to Colin. Colin, when Stroopy cut, was supposed to give it to Stroopy. They jumped Stroop right away. Uh, my guy slid down off of me and, and I was open and Colin looked over, fed me the ball. Uh, I kind of close my eyes and shot and uh you know pick the top corner and and you know that's uh that's kind of how it is I didn't know you know what kind of time we had left um you know whenever you do a, a you know a timeout and a six on five play you usually start to run it with like eight seconds so the uh the defending team doesn't get a chance to throw it in the empty net so I knew we were down on the clock I just didn't know exactly uh what kind of time we had but uh yeah, it just kind of all unfolded and, and, you know, you always have backup plays when I was coaching in Vancouver. Um, you know, if, if something happens, you, you swing the ball here, you do this and, and guys are pretty creative. And, you know, when you play with a guy like Colin, uh, you know, he, he sees the floor really well and uh, he saw me open and, and fed it to me. And all I did was, uh, you know, shoot as hard as I can and then happen to pick a corner that, uh, that I was aiming for. Yeah, I'm gonna. I don't remember anything about the timeout. Not a thing. Um, but I can remember vividly, for obvious reasons, the ball was supposed to go to Stroopy. I mean, he couldn't miss. Uh, but you know, again, obviously they were smart too on their end. And the one thing that struck me, and again, I, I went and watched it again because it had been so long. But not only does uh, you know, it's funny as a coach now you think about it. But not only does Dino go down and set the pick and keep his man busy. Stroopy's covered, but he completes his cut anyway. And that just clears uh, almost a, a full lane for Caleb to shoot. Um, and all I remember is like, I, I didn't have a shot. And it is almost just like an alley-oop. And I, <laughs> the angle of the shot, the view I've seen a million times, like I said, you don't see balls going to spots that small that quickly. And then the reaction of the crowd, it, it, again, it's it's etched in my memory forever. Um, it was an incredible shot under pressure. People don't take that into account. They just assume that you can do this with your eyes closed. And I guess Caleb proved once and for all you can, but uh, it, was an, <laughs> it was an amazing shot. And like I said, to, to have the, you know, kind of the ice in your veins to have to be able to take that shot. I think it, it'll live forever. It really will. And again, to that team dynamic, everybody did their job. And again, it struck me as, as I watched it again to see Stroopy kind of finish the play, regardless that he wasn't open. He didn't just stand there, just kind of created this, this C for Caleb to let that shot go. And again, I, I'll never forget the emotions afterward, but I couldn't tell you anything before it. 
Well, there's one thing that uh, that if I could change over, I would, and that would have been the celebration. I look, yeah. Uh, well, I've seen myself jump, and I look pretty weak. <laughs> well, the jump was better than the moonwalk after I think your first goal. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that was the '90s, right? We were allowed to do that kind of stuff back then. It was the '90s, and you have to remember, we we weren't accustomed. Like, fifteen thousand people is no joke. Like, they like we we didn't done anything. We just weren't used to this, so it was. Uh, we were on a different level, so you can't uh, you can't fault us for anything we did. We were feeling the energy of that place. Oh yeah, for sure. So that's what I was also going to ask. Just you know, you guys both being young guys in that situation, and and essentially the two of you guys orchestrating that play um, out of the timeout. Do you guys remember feeling any any nerves, like you know, when the balls in your stick are going back and forth? And I know Caleb, you know, you said you know when you got that ball in your stick, you knew you had to shoot it. You weren't sure how much time was left, but any nerves and then what did what did all that emotion translate into you know the moment that you know the roof blows off the place well nerves you know i don't know uh it was so long ago i can't remember if i was nervous i'm probably more nervous talking in this interview than i am <laughs> when i played that game but uh you know it was just when when you you know you play lacrosse you just do what comes natural like that's why you always continue to practice and and you know you pound repetition into somebody so it's muscle memory and so they just when the time comes, they know what to do. And, and that's what I try to teach my guys when I'm coaching is, you know, repetition, 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 because when the time comes, when there's pressure, your mind's just going to tell you what to do because you've done it so many times. And I think that the nerves, I'm sure there was some then, but, uh, you know, just, just thinking about it, I was just playing lacrosse, doing what I love and, um, you know, hanging out with uh, 20 guys, 20 awesome guys. I uh, wasn't too nervous, uh, you know, being with them. So, no, I, I can't say that there was too many nerves for me, no. I, I would say more nervous probably when we had to watch them run a play before that because it's out of your control, right? And Whipper has to come up with a save and then Laddie with the loose ball. And then once it's back in our stick, I think probably confident. Uh, I don't remember being nervous. I, I remember, like, we had been with Les and Eddie Como. Like, there was no stone unturned. We had been through this thing a million times. So, you know, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty low key. Like we, we knew what we had to do and we executed and I, you know, thinking of this, you know, Caleb talking about muscle memory and all this, like, I can't imagine how many kids for years would take that shot in their backyard. You know what I mean? And that's what I grew up doing. And this is truly like the basketball analogy, three, two, one, shoot it and win the game. I mean, this is essentially what it was. So being on TV and having Bonesy's voice to it and everything else, I can't imagine how many kids grew up pretending to shoot that shot. So that's kind of neat when you think about it that way. Yeah, no, for sure. Like I remember the week before, uh, you know, Bartley had called me and said, okay, you know, I want you to practice shooting top left because that were, that's where he was weak. So uh, you know, whenever he'd step out, he'd kind of drop that shoulder. And so that whole week I was basically sitting in a box shooting top left corner the whole time. And, you know, it just so happened that, uh, uh, you know, I had a friend of mine that was actually at the exact same spot you were when you passed it to me, throwing me the ball every single time, like for hours on end practicing that week. And then it just happened to, to happen in real life. So, you know, sometimes uh, when you practice and you do something, it's that muscle memory and it works out for you. That's amazing, man. It truly is. I, uh, I, I'm going to ask one question. Do you ever run into anybody that ever asks you about it anymore or is it too far gone? No, it's, I, I don't know if, like, where I live right now, uh, you know, no one really knows me out here. I'm kind of 
you know, I'm kind of low key uh, in my town, but uh, when I coach in Nanaimo, I get the odd guy that says that, you know, Hey, I was at that game and you know, I was like five. <laughs> so then, you know, you feel pretty old. <laughs> That's good, man. I, I got a great picture of you and I, I tried to dig it up last night. You got a cowboy hat on. It's right after that game. Stogies in hand. Uh, we look like it's, it may have been 35 years ago, never mind 20, but I tried to dig it up. I wanted to show it on the podcast today, but I couldn't find it. It, 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 it's the epitome of who you were and who I was at that time. And it brings me back down memory lane, man. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. If you ever find that, make sure you send it to me. I will for sure. Now, what was the celebration like afterwards and in the dressing room and everything? I think sometimes a lot of people remember that maybe more than, you know, the game and those times together as teammates, but you know, we talk about the weekend warrior thing in the NLL and, you know, you guys are truly on top of the world there. 15,000 fans in, you know, the biggest city in Canada, Maple Leaf Gardens, the last game, all this stuff. Like what, what was that feeling in the room? Like with the guys afterwards, you know, it was, it was a, a proud moment. Um, you know, whenever you, you accomplish something with uh, with a group of people, you feel proud. Um, obviously we're going to celebrate and have a few, uh, a few pints, but uh, I remember I think we went to some bar called the beaches and it was outdoor. And I remember there being like 10,000 people. It seemed like was at this, <laughs> at this bar. And I can't remember exactly what it was, but I just remember being like, wow, I've never seen so many people, you know, <laughs> at a bar. Like I couldn't, like I, I couldn't tell you where the washrooms were, where the bar was. People just kept bringing me drinks and like, it was just so many people there. Yeah, it was, it was, that's that window where you were, you know, you were treated like a true pro. It's like, the town knew about it. The town was buzzing. We had the red carpet laid out for us and the party in the room was great. Like Caleb said, just kind of soaking it in with everybody. You put all that work into it and you got to enjoy it. And then you get treated like royalty for that, you know, that one night you're out on town. And I don't know if that was the year we went to, was that the year we went to the docks? I it, I don't know. Yes. I can't remember. That's what it was. The docks. Yeah. Right. And I'd never been to a bar that big. And I can remember, you, you know, for me, I was lucky because I had a lot of my buddies around because I was local, but you know, all Caleb's family back at home there. So he was, he probably got the same treatment when he got home for another week or two. So I can imagine that was, that was well worth it. Uh, maybe for about a day. I remember my, uh, my family picked me up at the airport and uh, they were all hugs and there was a couple of media people there. Uh, but then after that, it was just back to normal. I think I left, <laughs> you know, four or three or four days later to come back out to the coast to play summer lacrosse. So right. short lived for sure. But we yeah. were kings. We were kings for a day, so to speak, Mike. I'll remember that vividly. We were well taken care of. Now, yeah, Doyle, sure I got we to ask you, Doyle, because your halftime interview, you gave a shout out to all the boys down at Filthy McNasty's and said you'd see them Sunday night in Waterloo. Did, did you make it there? <laughs> oh, I imagine. Yeah. That was probably Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Yeah. I was in, I was like uh, pretending to the bar business then. Like, you know, like you're a yeah. kid, you think you got some tie to something. It's, it's <laughs> like such an idiot. But you know how, you know, you don't know. You, you, just, you don't know what things are, what's real and yeah. what's not. And some guy said, hey, man, I'll give you some free beer if you throw this out there. And of course I did it. And I made him pay for it, I'm sure. But yeah, we were kids, man. It kind of sounded like the old slap shot line where they said, you know, I'm going to say hi to all the guys down at work when they're watching the bowling clip in the Caleb, anyways, I mean, and, and this is the, the weird thing about this You're You're on top of the mountain here. You've scored the biggest goal, um, you know, that really the city of Toronto even had seen in, in quite some time, Never mind just a, a big moment in the NLL and everything. But then, the offseason, you end up kind of going back home to Calgary in a trade. And, uh, you know, what was all that like uh, having to leave Toronto? 
Well, it was, uh, it was very difficult. Um, you know, I was unsure of it. I, I knew I wanted to eventually make it back to Calgary, um, you know, just because of being born and raised there, uh, you know, that I'm getting a new franchise. Uh, the scariest part was leaving a, you know, successful championship caliber team to going to a startup team. Um, you know, the first game when we got our, our butts kicked by Montreal, it was, uh, you know, a rude awakening that, oh, maybe I made, made a mistake, <laughs> you know, like maybe I should have stayed in Toronto. Um, but, you know, uh, overall, I thought it was a great idea. Um, me going to Calgary helped that franchise, um, you know, getting Tracy Kalaski there. Uh, the two of us kind of, um, you know, worked on a lot of things with the team, with the community, trying to, to grow and develop lacrosse. Um, you know, Blaine uh, getting the, the draft pick that got picked up uh, for Toronto. Uh, he worked out. He's a hell of a player and had a hell of a career in Toronto. Um, so I think both franchises, uh, you know, won on, on that deal. Uh, Calgary got to uh, get a local guy to help start up their, uh, their franchise. And Toronto got a, a young kid that uh, turned out to be a, a very successful, uh, you know, lacrosse player for him. So, uh, you know, I, I don't regret it. Uh, I do uh, regret leaving Toronto because we had such a great team and, you know, winning the championship and then in 2001 making it to another championship. But you know, not winning. Um, you know, I kind of wanted to stay to see if we could make it to another one and redeem ourselves. But, uh, you know, I, I was excited to to get the opportunity to play in my hometown. Now, a lot of people, Mike, a lot of people don't yeah. remember that. Like, uh, that that's probably one of the best franchises in the league right now. And it, it did start from nothing. And the, the irony of that is that a, a guy from Sherwood Park ends up going the other way, like of all places. You know what I mean? Like we send Caleb home to help build something in his hometown. And then, you know, like the, the kid we get in return is from an hour and a half, two hours up the road. It, it's crazy to think how small the world is. And and to, to Caleb's point, like that franchise was built out of nothing as was kind of lacrosse in that area uh, to where it is now, it's come a long way. And I think a lot of the minor, a lot of the minor success they've had is owed to what the Roughnecks kind of put into that. And, you know, not to toot Caleb's horn here and Tracy's, but they were a big part of that. It, it grew from nothing. Yeah, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't just me and Tracy, like Brad Bannister, sure. the owner, he, he planted the seed. We had a lot of guys, Andrew McBride helped out. Um, you know, there was a lot of guys that moved to Calgary to help develop lacrosse in Calgary. And, you know, it worked out tremendously. Uh, Alberta lacrosse is, is really strong right now. Um, you know, so it's, uh, it's thankful to that Roughnecks organization that uh, they were able to bring, uh, bring guys in. And, and, you know, thankful to the guys to actually going out to the community and, and getting involved. Now, this may have flown under the radar a little bit, but and I'm not sure even if I'm 100% right on this, but were you, you were announced as an assistant coach with the Warriors on March 10th, was it? Yes, I was, and then the next day uh, they shut the league down. So, <laughs> yeah, so I'm a so, day. I didn't even know that. Yeah, I, I was just looking that up, and that was definitely a story that I think kind of like flew under the radar a little bit with everything that was going on that week. But, uh, you know, I it just uh, – absolutely the most odd circumstances i guess for you there yeah no i went out uh wednesday for practice i, I got hired on the tuesday went out wednesday for practice uh took the ferry the last ferry back home got home around two in the morning went to work the next day and got the email that the league was shutting down so i basically was a, a coach for a coach for a day <laughs> well did you take did he did caleb did you take somebody's job there or are they adding you to the staff no, they uh, they let go of their offensive coach, and then uh, then they brought me in. Gotcha. I didn't know that. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> 
So also, uh, you know, just to wrap up, just talk a little bit about uh, kind of what you've been doing in the summer with Nanaimo and uh, and running that, where I believe you're the you're the coach and the GM there. Is that correct? Uh, I'm the assistant. Well, I, so I was the head coach and the assistant GM. Uh, yeah. Now I'm not. Uh, I'm just helping out. I with my third kid playing lacrosse. It was just too much to coach four teams. So gotcha. I didn't want to. I didn't want to not coach one of my kids. So. I made the decision to to step away from the Timberman, um, but no, I was the head coach there for five years and uh, assistant GM. And you know, when I when I took over the team, I I basically wanted to start from scratch. Um, we had to get rid of that uh, that it's okay to lose attitude. Start bringing in guys that wanted to win. Um, you know, tough love uh, does wonders, and you know that's uh, that's what we did. We uh, we made it uh, you know made it comfortable for the guys, but not too comfortable. Um, we wanted to bring back a winning culture. Uh, it took us uh, took us three years, but uh, we eventually got back into the playoffs, and and the team's doing really well now. Well, that's you got uh, any of our guys out there, Adam J. Who else, who who plays for that for your from uh, from the Rock right now? Anybody? Uh, Adam J. Does, um, but I think while his plans, he was going to stay out in Oakville this summer. Don't know. Well, obviously the cross is going on, so he's probably back home right now. But uh, yeah, we got uh, him. Uh, we got Drew Belgrave. We just traded actually, yeah. but he was with uh, San Diego. Um, oh God, now you put me on the spot. Now I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, Adam was having a breakout year for us this, for for the Rock. Not for us. My apologies for the Rock this year. He's been a pleasant surprise. I'm sure. Probably a secret you've known for some time. I imagine. Yeah. Yeah, no, Adams. Uh, he's a heck of a player. He uh, he's one of those guys that doesn't say too much, just works his bag off and and listens. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of players now don't listen, and, and he's one of those guys that uh, that listens when you say, "Hey, you got to do this." He actually does it, and and he gets better from that. And coaches respect that and give him the opportunity. All right, Caleb. Well, thanks a lot for uh, taking some time here. It's been awesome uh, catching up and uh, and just even hearing you and Colin talk about the goal and everything and. Uh, you know, just putting some perspective on it too, like Colin said, how many kids grew up taking that shot in their backyard that you uh, had a chance to take 20 years ago when you scored the last goal at the Garden. So thanks a lot for joining us and uh, hopefully we'll chat again soon. Hey, thank you guys so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Be safe, yep. Caleb. Thanks again, my man. Good to see you. Yeah. Great All seeing right. you too, Colin. Be safe. Take care. All right. That was Caleb Toth, the man who scored the goal 20 years ago. So we'll take a short break here on Toronto Rock Total Access. Welcome back to Toronto Rock Total Access. Mike Hancock along with Colin Doyle. And we're now uh, extremely honoured and uh, happy to bring in the guy who called the last goal at the Gardens. And that is none other than the original play-by-play -play voice of the Toronto Rock, Joe Bowen. Joe, thanks a lot for taking some time to join us here today. Well, it's luck what habit, guys. I have uh, very, I cut the lawn three times today and <laughs> I got the dishes done and I did my laundry. So I'm pretty much free for the rest of the day. <laughs> Yep. I know how hard, Joe, I know how hard it is to get you. So we are grateful. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. I'd love to do it. So we just want to go back and, and really start with, uh, you know, obviously you had had a, an already a pretty lengthy career as a play-by-play -play voice of the Toronto Maple Leafs. But how did you become the play-by-play -play voice of the Toronto Rock from the beginning? 
Uh, Uncle Wilbur, uh, Bill Waters, uh, when uh, he and his triumvirate group from uh, Aurelia, the Aurelia Mafia, as we like to call them, uh, purchased uh, the team and then made up their mind that they were going to move it to Maple Leaf Gardens. And uh, Bill asked if I would be interested in doing the play-by-play. -play, and I said, Wilbur, I, I probably had a lacrosse stick in my hands when I was in high school. I haven't seen a game or anything about it. He said, well, here's the, here's the tape. So Mark Askin and Paul Hendrick and I, I think we were in Florida, if memory serves correct, we're in a hotel room watching the final game from the previous year, the championship game. And I'm going, oh boy, this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> and it was. Um, uh, Brian Shanahan, thank God he was uh, at my side. And uh, we quickly moved past the racket stage to the stick stage. Uh, and uh, from that point on, um, it, it, it was a, an absolute delight. I mean, the, the box lacrosse game is uh, the fastest game on turf, and, and, and it was a delight. And the best part about it was people like Colin and all of the guys that were there. Um, they were just excited as hell to have TV being broadcast their games. And what happened at the gardens with the crowds just filling the, the old barn uh, game to game throughout the course of the seasons, um, it really put a toehold in, into the, the fiber of uh, sports in this city that uh, the Toronto Rock were a very viable part of it. Now, what do you think uh, from the beginning that, you know, had the fans engaged with the team immediately and these big crowds showing up? What was it that about the Rock that uh, engaged the sports community of Toronto right off the hop? Beer was cheaper. <laughs> That's good, yeah. <laughs> That would have been my answer too, Joe. <laughs> yeah, well, I, the, I mean, I still remember the very first game when they ran out. Remember at <laughs> halftime and, and uh, the guys from Molson's were scrambling around to get more, more beverages into the place. I thought, you know, that's really kind of unique. And, uh, but you know what? At, well, obviously the game itself is an exciting game. Uh, there's a lot of uh, physicality to it, a lot of body contact, a, a tremendous skill and high scoring. Um, so it, 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 I don't think it was, once it just got shown, people automatically say, hey, you know what? I want to go down and see a little of this. And, uh, and it took off very, very quickly, Mike. And, and it, was, uh, it was a real delight. And you, you like to be a part of something like that. And we like to think that maybe we had a little bit of a hand in it. But uh, Brian and myself, uh, we just had a great time doing the games. And they were produced exceptionally well. Mark Askin was the, the fellow who was doing the producing in the truck, and it was on big league television. I mean, you know, it was uh, going coast to coast in a lot of instances. So uh, having said that, it, it, it really was the, the cornerstone, I think, for the, how the league has grown and, and gone on since then. Explain to everybody, because I don't think everybody knows, your relationship with Wilbur, with, uh, with Bill Waters. How did that come to be? Like, how were you so tight with him? Because many people don't know the backstory of this ownership group and where they came from. Well, Colin, uh, we were looking for a color man, uh, probably 1984. We had had a couple of guys fit in. Brad Selwood had done it. Uh, 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 Victor Hadfield had done it. Um, and we were doing a bunch of auditions uh, at the gardens in an exhibition game. And Vicki McKee, who worked for Telemedia Sports, who I worked for doing the, the radio games, um, Bill Waters' private box was just around the corner from the entrance to the press box. 
And Bill, uh, Uncle Wilbur, as I call him, uh, Bill was one of the most, if not the most successful player agent uh, of, of the time. And uh, he jokingly, and I've known Wilbur for a while, uh, and he jokingly said, well, why don't I try to do it? Well, so anyway, they dragged him out of his box, uh, probably half into the bag, and <laughs> sat him down for the exhibition game, and it was immediate magic. I mean, he was outspoken, he was well-spoken, he had all kinds of knowledge of the players and everything else. And uh, uh, so Len Bramson, who was the head of Telemedia, <laughs> hired Wilbur to do the color. So he and I traveled together from about 84, right until he became uh, the assistant general manager under Cliff Fletcher with the Toronto Maple Leafs. And uh, uh, he is one of my dear friends. We, uh, we talk to each other at least once a week and um, uh, had a, a, a great rapport. And uh, it gets very loud when the two of us are in the same room because we end up almost yelling at one another. I don't know if it's just bad ears or loud voices. We'll say a little bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about this championship game uh, that we're kind of recognizing here with the Rock. It was May 6, 2000. It was a Saturday afternoon. And I guess uh, looking back at some old articles, realizing that uh, the game was actually originally going to be Friday night, but Sportsnet had a conflict. So they put it Saturday afternoon at three o'clock and, um, Joe, I just want you to kind of go back and take us into that time frame and just that building at that time with no air conditioning. And I think Paul Hendrick led off the broadcast by saying, uh, you know, it was 27 degrees, no air conditioning. And, um, you know, Colin, you can speak to this too, just what it felt like in that building that day and going into that championship game. Well, it reminded me a lot of the uh, uh, semifinal series uh, with St. Louis in 93. Um, when it was extraordinarily hot outside and very muggy inside and uh, the, because of the ice and no uh, uh, dehumidifiers in the building, uh, every, the stairwells became slippery. I mean, it was like going down a slide. People were falling down the stairwell. Um, so it was that hot. Um, and the ice, I believe, had been taken out. And Colin, maybe you can verify this or not. I think the ice was out. Good question. I, I don't recall that. Yeah, I don't. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe they had just put the uh, the, the plywood over the over the ice or whatever. Uh, but having said that, the building was very very hot. There was no air conditioning, and we had uh, at least a, a bit of time, a half a year anyway, uh, at the Air Canada Center, and it was boy nice in there. It was very, you know, I mean, it was big press box. We had our own little booth. Everything was pretty, pretty snazzy, um, but it was hot. And the higher up you got where Brian and I were, well, the heat rose and it was hot up there. But having said that, uh, for the players to be running on that and then to have, uh, you know, the equipment that they had on, um, it had to be very, very warm. And yet, at one point in the game, and I'm not sure whether Paul was interviewing one of the coaches or something, they said, well, we're used to this because we play in the summer and we play indoors and box across in rinks, and it's pretty damn hot in those places as well. So I don't know, Colin, did, did you notice the heat as much as you would have? I noticed the heat. It was, it was just like a summer lacrosse game, but the electricity of the arena and the energy in the arena, it, it, it made it hotter. And like you said, just the dampness everywhere you, you, you touched, everywhere you looked, because, you know, people forget, like, the first row of seats are right behind you. You can physically see everything. And uh, yeah, the, the heat with the electricity of the building made it so hot. And the louder it got, it seemed the hotter it got. 
totally unfazed though. Wouldn't wouldn't have told you to bug me one bit unless Rochester had scored the last goal. But uh, I remember being, and I remember going to the arena, you know, t-shirt and shorts, basically. It just, and the vibe around the arena, it was so busy and it was for lacrosse. And I remember that energy carried right into the building. And then when that, when, when the lid came off it, so to speak, at the start, the energy was something I'll, I'll never, ever forget. So, Joe, I mean, this was a, a back-and-forth game that the Rock kind of started a little bit slow and uh, then went on a big five-goal run there uh, to end the first half and take a 7-4 lead at the half. What uh, what were you thinking kind of of this game as it developed? Because, I mean, even re-watching it, I, I guess, you know, I don't think I had watched it in a long, long time. And I wasn't at the game in 2000, but I remember watching it on TV. But, um, you know, I, I just can't believe how physical it was. And it was almost like there were no rules in this game. And, you know, I think a lot of people kind of joke about that era and kind of the way Pat Coyle played defense in general and, and some of those guys, right, that there may not have been any rules. But uh, maybe just uh, walk us through what you thought of the, the game kind of as it developed and especially the physical nature of things out there. Well, if there was a rule book, Pat Coyle didn't read it. I'm pretty sure of that. Um, it was physical, and and it. Uh, but having said that, the rules that you did see, a lot of it impacted the scoring. There are a lot of goals called back uh, for crease infringements or whatever, and that was always a difficult thing for uh, uh, a new lacrosse fan to understand fully. Why was that not a goal? Why did it not? And Brian Shanahan obviously was a huge uh, help to me uh, and the audience to inform them why certain things were not allowed. But uh, certainly outside of the crease, uh, boy, they let everything go. And, and that's, that's the sport. I mean, it's, uh, it's not played by, uh, you know, people that don't like physical contact. And certainly Patty Coyle uh, very much enjoyed, and Terry Bullen. And I ran into Terry Bullen this year. He was in Colorado, um, and his daughter's playing lacrosse down there. And we had a nice chat about not only this game, but uh, his tenure there as well. But when you have Pat Coyle, uh, Bullen, and Dan Latasseur playing out the back door playing defense, uh, you had to pay an enormous price to get to the net. And John Grant Jr., who was just a tremendous, tremendous talent, I think without standing the best player on the floor that day. Uh, he had to go through an awful lot uh, in order to be an offensive catalyst that Rochester desperately needed. The rock scoring was spread out. Uh, they had a lot of guys that could score. Rochester really had to depend a lot on Grant's creativity and his scoring ability as well. And he paid an enormous price for that game. He I'm sure had to have a little uh, ice bath when that was all over with. And he started to get going. If I remember correctly, you kind of got the feeling, at least from where I was sitting, if he were to touch the ball one more time, we'd have been on the losing end of that game. Yeah, he, just a tremendous talent, Colin, and, and, and a great guy. And his dad's a wonderful person, too. I've had uh, lots of relations with uh, John Grant Sr. I, as I recall, he was selling alcohol at the time. At any rate, um, uh, yeah. And, 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 but, you know, The Rock had people like Danny Stroop who could score. Tim Squires, the guy below me here, Mr. Doyle, could score. Um, and, and then even Jim Beltman, who was sort of both ends of the floor, but more on the defensive side of things, one of the most talented lacrosse players in the history of the sport. And uh, all of them could score. And that was something, and Caleb Tope could score. So 
having said that, this the, the, the franchises were quite different. Rochester's was dominated by one player, more almost like a basketball team having Michael Jordan on it. Um, but The Rock were a team of, of great individuals, but a collective indi uh, a collection of individuals that could all uh, put the ball in the net. So that was a, a pretty exciting time. And, and it really played out that way throughout the course of the game, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just a back and forth game, which saw it look like, you know, in the late going in the fourth quarter that the Rock had kind of put some distance between the Nighthawks and had a chance to kind of ride it out. And then, you know, lo and behold, there's John Grant scoring that tying goal with three Beautiful guys goal. draped on him, you know, with uh, 50 seconds left. Unbelievable. And maybe both of you guys can answer just what are you guys thinking when that, uh, when that game gets tied up there in the final minute? Well, I'll tell you what I'm thinking. I got to be down at the Air Canada Center for game six <laughs> because the Leafs are playing New Jersey and I got news for you. Uncle Wilbur wasn't paying me nearly as much as the other guys. So I'm going, oh, for God's sakes, this could go not one, two, three overtime periods. And I'm, I'm, I was tight as it was. So thank God Caleb scored when he did because I roared out of the building, got on the subway, down I went to the Air Canada Center in, in plenty of time to do game six. And unfortunately, the Leafs lost to New Jersey 4-3. But you know what? When when Grant scored, you still had the the, the idea, and, and it, it got dicey there off the faceoff because it was a scramble draw, as I recall. And it looked like, oh, no, it's going to be in the wrong set of hands uh, for the final shot of the game. As it turned out, uh, that loose ball was scooped up. Uh, another big factor uh, for the, the Toronto Rock, how good so many of these guys were at loose balls. Uh, Jim Beltman, of course, was nicknamed Scoop, and, and rightly so. So that was as big a play uh, as coach scoring. I think the fact that they were able to scramble the draw enough but gain possession of the ball uh, to go away. What were, what were you thinking, Colin? Now, were you on the floor? Uh, no, I wouldn't have been on the floor for the faceoff. <laughs> yeah, because when you when you talk about great loose ball play, that wasn't my forte, but we had some guys that could do it. And when you look back at, you know, great moments in sports, you know, you always tend to just focus on what happened at the end. But like you said, looking back at how the last eight minutes of that game played out, you could see it start to slip from us. But we always had that home crowd in our in our back corner. And and I think when push came to shove, the energy again for us is probably what helped us get to you know, to the end result. But we had some loose ball hounds, starting with 32, of course. He was the greatest at it. Um, I don't even remember who picked up the ball off that draw. Mike, do you? I think it was after. I think Whip made the save, and I think Dan Latasura picked up the loose ball, and then it went into the timeout to uh, set and up when, And when you think play. of loose ball hounds, you don't think Dan Latasura. No. <laughs> but, you know, he was, he was just one of those guys that, you know, he knew how to get it done. And the, and the other thing you remember, Mike and, and Colin, was the eruption. Two seconds left and the eruption. Uh, the old girl went out uh, on, a, on a pretty high note. Um, and uh, to, to have that happen, I mean, it was bedlam in there knowing that two seconds was left and they're not likely to score from uh, off the faceoff. So having said that, I, that's something that I will remember and fondly remember about the grand old lady on Carlton Street going out like that. There's there's a few things I recall. I want to go back and correct me if I'm wrong. Was it this game? Because I do get the two mixed up between 99 and 2000. But, Joel, was it not in 2000 
when they had that Molson Canadian commercial, the I yes. am Canadian. Yeah, Joe, Joe, Joe Canada. Joe Canadian, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. And did and he, he not up. come and do it live? Yes, he and did. The, the eruption with two seconds left, I think, failed in comparison or paled in comparison <laughs> to how loud that building was when he was reciting that. And I think it was about midway through first quarter, and I've never in my life heard a building that loud. Yeah, they printed him out and put the microphone out there and away he did with his Canadian rant. And I suppose you would have noticed it there because you're kind of just sitting there getting your breath. I think when, when uh, Caleb scored, all of you guys were probably screaming so loud you couldn't hear the, the crowd in your ears because everybody was sort of screaming in your ear sitting right beside you. So, uh, yeah, you're right. That, that, was, that was a real unique kind of a thing, and it was uh, – it was well done. It was well presented by the guys from Molson to, to bring that young man out and do it all. And I won't, I won't tell the next story unless, Mike, you want to get into the goal first before I talk about something that was so funny afterward, or would you like me to carry on? Well, I just want to talk about, yeah, just coming out of the timeout quickly, and I think everybody talks about how the play was not obviously executed as it was drawn up and that the ball was intended to get into the stick of Dan Stroop, who had already scored five goals at that point and everything just seemed to be going into the net for him, uh, especially in the fourth quarter. But uh, yeah, like, I mean, if, what, what happened on the final if, play that, I mean, you can see Stroop gets picked up pretty early, right? Uh, if, right. When he if you watch the play, Dean Harrison's supposed to pick down for Stroopy, clear him some room. I'm supposed to skip him the ball, let him come around and score. They jumped it. Uh, obviously somebody had to go with Dean and somebody had to go pick up Stroopy and that's just left if you look at it, just a vacant area um, with at that point, you know, one of the deadliest shooters in the game. Um, so the play in essence was supposed to kick it down to Stroopy coming off a pick, but they jumped it for obvious reasons. He had the hot hand. Um, and I, I, I can remember at that point being just don't make me shoot it. Like I had had a tough day shooting the ball. Um, O'Toole had my number. So somebody came to me, just opened up a little crease and, I'm not, I'm not sure I've ever seen a ball go into a smaller spot smoother. And it felt like I could see it. I can see it to this day. It goes in the only spot it could have. It was an amazing shot. And, and as Joe alluded to the, the top coming off that place, it was, man, it was a memory that it'll never leave me. And here, here's this kid. He's a rookie in the, in the league that year and Caleb, and uh, you know what? Uh, it, it takes a lot of gumption to take the last shot, whether it's basketball or anything else. And uh, here he has the chance to do it, and he, uh, he didn't make a mistake and then went on to obviously have a, a great career in, in uh, the uh, National Cross League as well. Now, yeah, what did you do in the dressing room? <laughs> it was bedlam after. We had to get off the floor because we had two seconds left. I get onto the bench, and again, there's Bill Smith, one of our owners. Like, imagine this now on the bench he had just left his seat and climbed over or just stepped down onto the bench and there he was hugging everybody beer in hand <laughs> if you can imagine nowadays seeing this it was a it was a truly unique experience because of the building and um you know i don't even remember what happened on the draw afterward i was completely blacked out with excitement but uh wow what a what a feeling and talking about it and watching it it never gets old Ah, the Aurelia Mafia. That was a, a great time in, in the history of the franchise. Yeah, and every time I see Bill, we we reminisce about it and so many other things. And 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 I I don't want to get off topic, but I've you know we've always talked um, 
I've always found it interesting. You've always said, Joe, that the thing that you loved about the game were, were the players and the people around it. And at that time, being as though it was so new, nobody really knew what professional lacrosse was supposed to look like. And I, I think looking back at it, we all just were having fun in the moment, yourself included. And I can remember trips just talking to you and, you know, understanding that the world you come from didn't look like the world we were in. And I, I'd love for you to touch on that for our listeners to say kind of how different it was and what you loved about that. Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you something that I had never heard in the National Hockey League. And, uh, and that was, uh, I was almost 20 some odd years into doing it. And this isn't this year. It was a uh, uh, following year. Uh, we were, NHL walkout was on. And so I was doing games and we went to Philadelphia and we were supposed to play there that night. And there was an enormous snowstorm, enormous snowstorm. And we're on the bus. We had uh, gone to a pregame uh, shoot around, now going for a pregame meal. And the snow is a foot and a half. And we are on the bus. And uh, Terry Sanderson, who was coaching at the time, gets a phone call from the commission telling him that the game that night had been canceled. And it was sort of like Bob Newhart's one-sided telephone conversation. You know, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, right, okay, game's canceled. Okay, play. All right, boys, the game's canceled. we got to find a beer store. <laughs> I've never heard that on any bus or airplane in the National we, Hockey League. But we did that, and the boys went in, realizing we might be there for a few days because of our flights. They didn't come out with cases. They came out with flats. I mean, they needed front-end loaders to load the, <laughs> the bus. I can remember that vividly, too. Almost as good as the Caleb Toth goal. And we had ourselves a good good night, didn't we? Yes. And for some, the next night and the next night. Because no <laughs> we couldn't all Guilty. get up at the same time. And I was there for, I think, three days because my ticket was probably the, the least expensive on the return trip. So. Yeah, that was uh, that was different. But you know what? That was the league because uh, these guys were working. You know, they, they there were cops, there were there were teachers, there were guys. Uh, you know, pulling down jobs who their their bosses were good to them to let them out to play and be a part of this. Uh, but hey, they were just uh, you know the, the weekend warriors. And uh, you know what? You're a weekend warrior. You don't mind having a beverage every once in a while. By all means, since the Sponsor was Molson's. You might as well. They basically forced our hand, Joe. I can see that. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what went on there. Thank you, Colin. I broke all these years. Now I finally have the reason. Now, Joe, there's another part of lacrosse history that I don't know if you understand or realize. I think how tied you are to it, and that's the. Uh, the old war on the floor lacrosse DVD that you co-hosted all the segments with Pat Coyle, who we've talked about quite a few times yeah. during this, but um, that video is still something that, you know, the youth of lacrosse, uh, you know, they, they still gravitate to that video and they love it. And I don't know if you, uh, you know, are aware of that or, you know, know that like these people, uh, this lacrosse community is so attached to this video and it's almost like, well, it's not a movie. It's almost like the, the slap shot of lacrosse, like to go back and to watch that movie and the number of times it gets run on, you know, junior lacrosse teams, they watch it on the bus, all that kind of stuff. Um, do you remember much about putting that video together? Yeah. Yeah. Cherries. Yeah. You know what I I do guys. Uh, I I get 
tweets and whatnot sent to me from the, oh yeah, we were caught up doing this and watching that and they, and they love it. And uh, uh, Patty, Patty was great. Yes. <laughs> There's, uh, you think of guys in the National Hockey League who have absolutely no contact. <laughs> and Pat was one of those guys. I said, you come in here, and that's, that's what's going to happen. And uh, uh, he, he was a delight to be with and doing those, uh, those videos. And, and, and all of the guys that, that helped out doing those things were great. I mean, the play, I mean, how many sports would you see Paul Hendrick with a timeout with seconds remaining in the game, walk down and talk to the damn goalie? <laughs> it doesn't happen. And yet, and yet we had the liberty to do that. And I remember the first time because uh, uh, we're getting on our headsets, we're listening to Mark in the, in the truck. Go down and talk to Pat. Go down and talk to uh, the goaltenders. And he's going, I can't do that. Yes, you can. Go, 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 go. And so down he went. <laughs> there he is, talking with the goalies and everything. I thought, okay, this is this is. But that's that's the kind of cooperation we got, and it was a kind of the excitement that all of the players had that uh, they were getting a lot of uh, notoriety and a lot of recognition that was here before. Uh, not available to them. I can, the, 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 the memory itself is brilliant, uh, but obviously you only get the live memory once. Joe, having your voice, uh, I, I don't have the memory anymore without your voice to it. It's, I've seen it so many times and you offered such a unique uh, perspective to the sport and your, your, your voice being so powerful and so famous. And uh, I, I just thought, you know, again, you look back at all the good times and uh, you were a big part of it because all those memories now that we have from those years, uh, you've got your voice tagged to it. So, you know, I'm forever grateful and um, I'm so happy to have lived through it myself, but I'm even more grateful now, obviously, to have a legendary voice like your own um, for my kids to hear. Uh, you offered such a colorful version of what it is we were doing and your, your energy and your enthusiasm. It's, uh, it's not lost on a whole generation of youth, uh, the, of players that were watching the games of those days. Well, I really appreciate that, uh, Colin. And, um, you know, and unfortunately, because of the National Hockey League's uh, schedule and now the fact that we don't charter with the team, we have to stay an additional night. I can't get down to see a lot of games that I, I wish I could. Um, and oh, right now, I'd take any damn game to go and watch. <laughs> Even if you came out of retirement to play, I'd probably go and watch that, too. But It'd be um, a sight for sore eyes. Oh, yeah, it would be. Absolutely. But you know what? Yeah, it, it, it was fun. And uh, it, it, it was a, a, a different sport. Uh, I can't thank Brian uh, Shanahan enough for uh, coaching me through it uh, to understand the, the nuances and the idiosyncrasies of the game uh, and what it meant. But um, I think that uh, I'd done enough hockey games and I'd certainly done enough fights in the National Hockey League to understand how to broadcast that aspect of the game uh, and uh, that was, uh, it, it was an easy transition. It really was. Other than the fact that uh, instead of maybe six or seven goals a night, we were going to have 23 or 24 scored. And, you know, one of the things, too, that I've always wanted to do and make sure is you can't cheat the game. Um, it was exciting when the Toronto Rocks scored. But you know what? It was pretty damn exciting when the Rochester Nighthawks scored or the Buffalo Bandits scored. You can't cheat the game. Uh, and the game is still uh, a tremendous uh, spectacle, and, and we had a lot of fun doing it. 
Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Joe. Just to echo Colin's uh, comments there, uh, your energy and your voice, I think it did so much to put the rock on the map in the early days. And uh, just thanks a lot for doing this. And uh, hopefully you and your family stay safe through these uh, slightly uncertain times here. Thanks, guys. It's been a real pleasure. Colin, good to see you. Great seeing you again. Thanks again for all the memories, Joe. You bet, buddy. All right, that was Joe Bowen, the original play-by-play voice of the Toronto Rock. We'll take a short break here on Toronto Rock Total Access. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Toronto Rock Total Access. I'm Mike Hancock along with Colin Doyle. And Doyle, that was uh, unbelievable taking a walk down memory lane with Joe Bowen, with Caleb Toth, and with you uh, riding shotgun all the way there with those things. It was, uh, there was some amazing stuff to come out of those things. And one thing I want to touch on right away is on the, the Joe Bowen side of it, the fact that he was calling two games in one day. Like that was something I, I, Never knew, never clued into me that here's a guy, he's going from calling a game at Maple Leaf Gardens and like we talked about with the heat and the the press box way up in the rafters and like probably like 40 degrees and humidity up where he is. And then he's got to go and call an NHL playoff game down the road, you know, basically like an hour and a half later after this game ends, like to even be able to put the same energy, like just incredible guy and, and what a story there too. I'd love to go back and listen to the call of that Leaf game to see yeah. if the energy was there. I, I was, uh, we should have pressed him more on that because, you know, everything he gave to our game, I can't imagine there was enough in the tank, but he's truly a professional and it was great to catch up with him and Caleb. And uh, yeah, it just brings, it, it, you know, it brings me back. I'm sure it did the same with them, not only to that game, but to that era. Yeah. Um, and, and your mind gets going and you, you remember how it used to be and fond memories for sure. So I, you know, it, it was great. It was great. And uh, to honor a great day and a great goal and a great game. So it's been okay. a lot of fun. I'm looking forward for you and I to sit down and break this out a little bit. But having those two guys on was awesome. Yeah. And one thing from the – I'm taking one thing from each interview that I thought was really cool. The, the thing from the Caleb interview I thought was really cool was the fact that he said that that week he had somebody basically feeding him the ball and taking that shot all week practicing because the coaches had said – practice shooting top left corner that's where he's going to give it to you and that he had that he basically practiced that shot that he took all week to to win it that's incredible amazing yeah we don't let Caleb's modesty fool you he uh (laughs) he probably in preparation was thinking he'd be the one taking the shot all week long that's just who Caleb was just like it's who I was and just like it's who everybody was you know we all wanted to take that shot so um no kidding. Talk about uh, being prepared for it. That's a, that's a great story. And to that, hear like, his perspective. How many times have we talked about that too, about being, you know, wanting to be the guy and how important that is to personal success, to team success too. Like you talk about that, that you and Caleb both had that in your DNA. Like it, it's awesome. Right. And those were, those are the guys that are, you remember, you know, as being the guys that took the big shot and take it because they wanted it. Right. And, and, absolutely yeah and Caleb had that in his blood like he he went on to have more success beyond what we you know what he accomplished here with the rock he was just one of those players who wanted to be great yeah 
didn't pass up the opportunity. The great ones never do. So yeah. it's kind of great. It was great to go back with him. It's been so long since I've chatted with him. And like I said, it just brings me back to a real, to a real fun time. Yeah. All right. So let's get into the game itself. And I know you had a chance to, to watch, rewatch it. I rewatched it. Uh, unbelievable. It was just nice to, um, you know, sit back and watch it as a fan, obviously. And, and just to, to take it in and, um, the, the first takeaway, yeah. The first takeaway has got to be, for me anyway, how little the game was coached. Um, really? Today, yeah. you don't see a ton of turnovers. You see, the game is so structured. And this game in that era was anything but. Uh, there was a ton of turnovers, bad shots, uh, bad force feeds, um, tons of play-ons by the referee where it would be an interference or a penalty today. The flow of the game, the feel of the game was just totally different than what you see now with the standard five in, five out. Sometimes you get a good shot, sometimes you don't. I felt like the the game itself, you could tell, was from a different generation. Um, I loved it. Um, it's the same reason I like going back and watching old hockey games. It just had that feel of old-time lacrosse, of old NLL lacrosse. Not summer lacrosse, but Old school NLL lacrosse, so much let go, but yet so much called. I think both teams had six or seven power plays. Yeah. Um, but like Coyle I said, took a couple penalties. He might yeah, have been the emotion got to me. Numbers. <laughs> I'm surprised Les kept putting me back on the floor. But well, I was yeah, like with Coyle, just, but Coyle, like he took four minor penalties he in, did. in the first half, and then I think he took another one in the second. So like he was responsible for five. <laughs> <laughs> he probably got away with another five. Like, <laughs> yeah. and, and it wasn't just him. Like, we were the bullies for sure, but they had some guys laying, like, you know, headshot after headshot after interference after late head. Yeah. It, it was astonishing to me, the physicality of the game. Bonesy talked about it. The, I think it just fed to the energy in the rink. And, it's, you know, as a player, looking back, that's the thing that jumped out to me the most. Eh? Everything is so overcoached now. There's so few errors. Yeah. Um, so few risks, you know, offensively. Uh, and then, you know, I started to think about, like, I just started looking at the lineups. And I think both teams had, like, 10 offensive players dressed. And a couple of them, like, uh, Dan Teat was on the on Rochester's wow. five-on-six defense at the end of the game. That's a Hall of Fame player who's known for scoring goals playing on their man down, essentially, at the end of the game. Yeah. So, the the Hall of Famers in this game, and I'll list off a few, like Corey Bombery Jr., Dewey Jacobs, Kerbalowski, Casey Powell, Dan Teat, Randy Mearns, Tim Sudan, Hazen, Thorpe. The, the names are endless. Like, this game was loaded with talent. You got Gill, Langdale, both the Squire boys, Stroopy, uh, Veldman, Toth, Toll, Laddie, Clark, Bullen. Like, again, uh, Hall of Famers after Hall of Famers. And, and, and looking back at it, I think those horses we ran out the back door, there were six of them and they played every shift. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing to think that they were able to at least put a lasso on that offense somewhat. But again, as you watch the game and you start to see Powell and junior go, you start to like looking at it now, you're like, Whoa, we might've got away with one man. Because once Casey found his groove and junior found his groove, it looked like it was going to be tough to stop because some of the goals they scored and you watch Casey shoot that ball and you watch junior go to the net. It was, it was pretty special to, to see it from the other uh, perspective, pardon me, but 
truly amazing, man. Uh, and then obviously Whipper in one net, O'Toole in the other. You got Chugger on the bench as a back. Like he was loaded with talent, and it's probably why it was such a good game. But to see how the rosters were created, the game day roster compared to the way it is today, it, it's like it was reverse. So you know those kinds of things sneak up on you. You don't really pay attention to it till you go back and look at something like that. So for me, the flow of the game and the lineups. And the talent and the those that was my biggest takeaway. And I got a million other things we'll talk about, but why don't you just kind of echo or, or give, it, yeah. give your thoughts on what I what I brought up there? I think the the franticness, the unstructured, unsettled play was something that definitely added to it. And and like we kind of joked about in the interview with uh, with Joe Bowen, just the you know the physical factor and you know and him making the comment of saying you know. Uh, if there was a rule book, Pat Coyle never read it. <laughs> you know, yeah. that comment was pretty funny. Uh, you know, but, but just like you said, like it was just guys were draped all over each other. And, you know, if you had a shot, you just took it. If you missed the net, it was bad. Like whatever it did, you played on. Right. And it just played on and played on. And it was still like, everybody was selling out on every play the whole night. And it was just like, the crowd is going. And I'm sure that fed into it quite a bit into guys willingness to to pay that price in the heat and everything i'm sure you know there was a, the stakes right that, that what was there, on the line right right there was a scrum after basically every dead ball yeah but yeah. the scrums kind of sorted themselves out yeah. it, it, it didn't kill the pace of the game there was no stoppages to to relook at goals that may or may not have counted all these things he kind of injected into what we see today i you know it, it just it made the game kind of interesting and exciting. And, um, you know, there, there were so many things like Kimbo takes a backhand shot with under two minutes to go up to could have iced it. He goes BTB <laughs> and Powell runs down the other end of the floor and goes like a cross handed backhand shot before he picks up his own rebound and sticks it. Like, like yeah. you said, the, the creativity, nobody, there didn't seem to be a ton of repercussion. No, <laughs> um, you, you know, you just played the game. And I think that, that, somewhat has left us because of how composed and coached the game is now. And I don't want to be, I've never wanted to be that guy that looks back and say, I wish it was the way it used to be, but you know, that was exciting. So take it or leave it. So that that's, that's that. Well, what about you getting into a, you know, I think what today might've been called a fight with Mike Hazen, yeah. <laughs> but you know, you guys were, your, your buckets were off. You guys were mixed up. Like what, uh, do you remember anything about that after? You I know, don't remember, but I watched it and, you know, yeah. he took a shot at Kimbo and yeah. I was there to have Kimbo's back and he saw the opportunity to get me out of the game. And Mike was always smart like that. And I, again, there was a ton of hatred. Like yeah. this wasn't the first time through with these two teams. Um, you know, I, I think everybody forgets they were trying to answer what happened the following year. Uh, yeah. And, you know, back in the same spot, the same time of year and to have even a better game and the animosity, you only get one crack at it, right? It's like a game seven. Yeah. And you could see that unfold. It was, it was amazing. And I, obviously the 15,000 people in there kind of fed to this and, you know, as a lacrosse player, you, you never know if you're going to get to do that again. So you just leave it all out there. And I think to a man, if you ask anybody involved with that game, they'll tell you the same thing. You just leave it out there because you don't know when this, when this will happen again. Yeah. And even the way the game went, you know, Rochester gets off to a good start. Uh, you know, you guys come back, you have that five goal run in the second quarter, you're up seven, fourth half. Then now it's eight, eight going in the fourth quarter. And even, even as I was watching the game, it was, 
I want to say it was almost five minutes into the fourth quarter, even before the goals really started to come. Cause I'm watching the game. I was like, God, this thing finishes 14, 13. I, like, I, I don't remember it being so like frantic in the last 10, like that many goals scored over the last bit. And then even when, you know, like you're saying, you're up a couple goals, like in the late going, and then now you still got to, you, you would have thought the game was over at 13-11 in that situation. And nowadays, nowadays it would be. Yes. Like and nowadays it would be. Yeah. How controlled that the end of the game yep. would have been. that It just wouldn't have unfolded like that. And it was. That's right. Uh, yeah. A, a bunch of things. We'll go through it here. I don't really know how to go through this, but I'll, I'll, I'll bring up some stuff. Yeah. And, you know, we can talk about, talk about it, but, you know, fascinating stuff. For me, number one, no helmets on the referees. Yep. <laughs> that, that takes you back. That takes you back. And look at the, the hair on Foxy and some of these guys. Ravery, I think, was the other. Yep, anyway, yep. Uh, you know, again, referees that knew the game, they let stuff go. They caught, like, you know, they, they were well in tune. And I think they, you know, they fed into the flow of the game. It was awesome to see that. The next thing that caught my eye, I think we all forget how good Steve Toll was. He had his hands. I've forgotten. I mean, he is picking passes off. He was a loose ball hound. And he could have had three, and and on any given night he would have. So that you you forget to see. It's funny though to to be in the dressing room to see the same staff, you know, twenty something years later. Yeah. That that I don't know. Like again, I was in the organization, so I have a lot of love for these guys. But man, that says something about the franchise. These guys have been around a long time, and they have their name on all the banners and everything. But you know, you for, again, you forget how important these guys are to an organization just remind yourself that they were there since the start, the same doctors, the same team staff. It's, it's incredible. Um, Stroop had a game. Uh, yeah. Stroopy had a game. Not only did he score five, but they were three big ones down the stretch. And that little run in the fourth quarter that you said you didn't remember, neither did I. I mean, he was back to back to back. Yeah. Um, you know, he could have won us the game. Mm -hmm. So uh, I remember the game. I remember how good he was, but you don't remember when he was that good. And it was when the chips were down and uh, he was awesome for us. And, and again, sometimes time eludes you and you forget. And I remember him having a big game, but I don't remember him having a big game when it mattered so much. What about Kimbo's shot around the defender that literally is like an inch away from the guy's helmet? That's a bouncer that just tucks right under the bar. Beautiful, wasn't like, it? unreal unreal like that shot you're watching and they showed the replay a few times and just that ball tuck under the bar with the mesh go up it's just like it, and then the crowd like, kind of spring up behind them yeah in in it if you think about it when you heard bonesy talking about how raw they were to this game yeah some of the camera angles from this game are as good as i've seen yeah like caleb's yeah. goal the 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 view the upper view of that shot is yeah. as good as it gets yeah. And then the Kimbo goal, like some of these, it's amazing to think they were throwing this together, literally having done it for seven games or eight games. Yeah. It's yeah. nuts. Yeah, it, it was so good. And it was a bit non-traditional. The number of times that they went to the shot from, like you say, the long shot of the floor, the shot right from above the net, like the end camera was, uh, was pretty unique, I thought. I know it gets used today, but not as frequently as that. And maybe that you know, this is good discussion for going forward, but something to even sit there maybe with some of the, the broadcasters and producers now to sit back and watch that game and see how, right. how it was put together and stuff. Because like you say, it, it was different. It was different. It had a different feel and it was a little bit more like frantic. Raw. Like you said, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it felt different for sure than what you watch today. Yeah. 
Um, and then there, at one point, you know, I think in the fourth quarter, I don't know why this caught my eye, in the background, you can hear there'll be no increase in tickets, ticket yes. price, <laughs> to the following year when we move to the ACC. And the place goes bananas. Yeah. <laughs> you hear this huge roar. Yeah. And again, you know, outside of the game itself, just looking back at the broadcast, like I'm like, I had to rewind. I said, why are they cheering? And then it goes back and then Bonesy repeats it. And <laughs> yeah. It's hilarious to think that that got such a rise. Well, way. actually, I'm funny you say that because reading, looking back at some of the old press clippings that I, uh, that I grabbed the other day, like that's in most of the articles about the game is that there was also an announcement that the ticket prices would remain the same for yeah, so be 15 to 25. Like that made it into the article about the game was that the crowd had this reaction to the, the ticket price, uh, you know, that everything was staying the same when they moved down the street to, uh, to Air Canada Centre the next year. So, yeah, yeah. It, it's crazy. It, it like was, you, uh, you know, the one thing with the Waters crew, um, the ownership group, that there was never a dull moment to market. They no. never missed the marketing opportunity. And there you go. <laughs> right in the middle of a, of a one-goal championship game. Let's give the fans what they want. Let's save them a few bucks next year. It's, it's kind of awesome when you think about it. Well, even um, we, we go back to talking about something that Bonesy talked about was the and, – and you mentioned, I think, too, was the, the Joe Canadian, his Canada yeah. rant that was in the first media timeout in the first quarter that it was like the fans are already juiced and then they brought this guy out on the <laughs> – and you can tell like he is feeding off the energy of the crowd. Time. he starts kind of like he's doing his thing but then he sees that people are like loving it and he goes bananas like screaming into the microphone and the crowd is just like it was and, and when when people talk about like the old days like they forget how how ingrained Molson's was with the team yeah like you know it, it was a kind of a running joke how many beers we had all the time but like Molson benefited from having us there as we benefit. Like it was just like the perfect, at the time, it was a perfect partnership. And this was kind of a byproduct, this Joe Canada or Joe Canadian yeah. guy. The fan base was that, that was kind of responsive to the beer. Like, and then we talk about running out of beer in the, in the first game and all the records that were being broken of the beer consumed at these games. You know, it's a big part of the memory that I have, believe it or not, from this and everywhere yeah. we went, there was Molson, Molson, Molson. Like, you were given access to bars you'd never have access to, and you were, like, red carpeted. It was it was kind of strange, but it was a big part of the way the team was operated then. And I, I don't know what the deal with Molson's was, if there was one at all, but <laughs> they were everywhere. Yeah, and you think about it, too, even in the, the picture, the celebration, the one guy, <laughs> Patty Campbell's got his gear off. What's he got on underneath? Molson Export. Canadian. Molson, Molson Canadian. Canadian. That's right. <laughs> it, 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 it was almost like it was planted. He was the one guy, but he went front, front and center. Boom. Molson Canadian ad, right? It's, and it could have been. Like, he would have been, right? <laughs> he, he would have been the guy. But, you know, again, it was like, it, it was this what made this era so much fun, too. Like, it was like, it, it was just like we were kings of the city when we were down yeah. there on the weekend. It was, it was so much fun. And obviously, when you watch the game unfold and you see where the marketing dollars are coming in, Man, it was a it was a big partner back then, and it was fun. It yeah. was fun to say the least. Uh, both goaltenders in the last six minutes were awesome. Yep. Made big key saves. You forget again, like they were getting lit up, kind of those last ten minutes. But they yep. both had to make key saves to keep the game tied. Um, that I found that interesting, as always. Whipper did his thing, and then the pass from O'Toole 
to the gold junior scored. Yes. So I the basketball tool was amazing. A junior scored, I think that made it 13-12. But then the BTB that junior scored to tie the game. Yeah. Like, you know, again, you could argue that maybe was one of the best goals ever scored. Yeah. And there was six of them that game. You could say that between him and Powell and some of like truly amazing to, to like again imagine today diving with three guys on you putting it over your shoulder and tying the championship game it seems like a rarity yeah well that was one thing i want to talk about too that pass from o'toole that long bomb i can remember the bandits used to do that i feel like a lot back in the day where jt would be off the bench and boom the ball was in his stick right away but like does anybody do that anymore not like that Is it because of the way that the transition of the game works that guys get off the floor maybe that it's such like a emphasis of getting on and off the floor so much but like that goal that was scored that it seemed to just happen more often and maybe it was because even in the bandit days maybe it was pat o'toole throwing it to jt back in the the middle part of the 90s but um, but you see you see rosie nowadays every now and again put one on a rope to somebody and it's yeah. exciting but yeah. i think if it doesn't go you know you got to live with yeah. now hey put that away yeah we're not, we're not turning the we're not turning it over Back then, uh, even Whipper was throwing the ball up the floor. Yeah. It's like a 50-50 risk reward. Like, I don't remember Whipper throwing the ball so freely in the last 10 years of his career, but yeah. it's it seemed like – and, again, in this game, I, I had matchup circle. Like, Dan Stroop was checking Casey Powell. Uh, you know, like, uh, uh, Randy Mearns was checking Stroopy. Like, you just saw a lot more mismatches, and the game just went on. The yeah. whole – offensive set didn't shift to represent that nowadays if somebody's checking somebody who shouldn't be you see just everybody else leave and it just becomes about that like it just was the way it was it, it was just kind of neat I, I don't know if i can put it into words or if i'm doing it justice but you know to see like some of these guys matt like laddie matched up with powell you know foot speed but it the game just went on yeah you know what i mean it didn't the whole game didn't change to try to dictate this matchup it was really neat to see and like i said you saw stroop and gill and langdale and even myself on defense more than once yeah so in that sense it's nostalgic to look at the game to see where it's come but you know the, the goalie outlets a, a, is is a great spot to start like you just don't see it like you used to anymore and well, i think it's because of the the fact that if it doesn't go once you know you gotta the coaches are just gonna tell you not to do it yeah now it's the same 30 second shot clock like <laughs> yeah nothing's for sure. changed from yep. that dynamic like yeah it, you know so i don't know why but i think i know why but it anyway yeah i digress go ahead well one other thing i want to talk just we'll get back to the tv part of it and just the impact that that had i think on a bigger scale in the sport i had a real quick conversation actually uh yesterday with garrett billings and he was telling me a story about basically where like he remembers where he was 14 years old I guess he would have been watching this game on TV and him the way he was telling me about it last night was just like it it again puts things in perspective to where he's saying you know he's from BC that's the first time he's seen lacrosse on that stage he said it's really the first time he's seen a game with fans going crazy watching a game and and just all that like he was like that's his, I think, when he looks back at it, that goal, that game is when he, I think, probably fell in love with the game to a, an even larger extent and said, well, wait a sec, like, I want to do that one day, right? Like, that's unbelievable. And that's where I think we 
have definitely sometimes, and maybe me personally, people who know me, I know I beat this drum all the time, but just the importance that having the game on television has in the big scheme of things here and just how many people I think could probably tell a similar story to that of watching The Rock on TV all the time in the, you know, the beginning and then into the early 2000s. It was just like it, the impact it had on the game and, and all these guys that are playing now, right? Like it's... Oh. You hear it over and over and over again and and reliving it, um, reliving it today with this group of people and yourself, like Mm -hmm. you cannot undervalue and underestimate what TV meant to this game. And like for every Garrett Billings, there was 7,500 stories. And you could see why after watching that game, 10,000 kids picked up a stick to play. And you can't negate that connection. Um, It was so exciting so new um so well done and the game turned out to be such an iconic game that you would be remiss if you didn't if you couldn't see why all of a sudden lacrosse in canada literally after that game spiked Mm -hmm. and uh you know we all hope to you know we all hope that's where it can go again with with the caliber of players that are in the league now and you know the ability to produce dynamic tv I, I think, you know, we'll talk about it later. We always do, but I, I don't think you can you can remake that. And I think uh, everybody from that generation will tell you that that had some sort of influence, whether their parents were watching the game or whether they were watching the game, whether they were already in lacrosse and they were just tuned in or whether they had never seen it before. People cared about lacrosse, and it was those seasons when we were on TV. So there you go. And I think the other thing that was maybe close to that, and it's tough because, like, We've kind of mentioned the perfect storm. You got Joe Bowen's voice, an incredible game. Last game at Maple Leaf Gardens. It's a setting that so many people grew up just watching hockey and they turn that on and hear Joe's voice and see that building. And it's almost like, well, what's going on here? I got, I got to check this out. Right. The the next closest thing I would have thought was 2005 with, uh, you know, Doc Emmerich calling the game on NBC and the 19,005, the Red Air Canada center, that game in the, the, the hockey lockout season was, uh, Maybe I the next closest thing to I wouldn't even say moment. next closest thing. I would say that was probably a bigger marker in the sand. Um, really? Okay. Because it was broadcast across the U.S. Yep. It was an NBC and Doc Emmerich, and the crowd was significantly bigger. And I, I was on a, on a podcast yesterday. We talked about this. I think that was the height of the NLL. Yeah. Like that game – was the vision that everybody has been chasing since yep. it, you know the the energy that it was hard to get a ticket the place was sold out um it was well produced and you got an audience in the states that had never seen it before and i i feel like the 90 the 2000 final was amazing uh and i think it sparked so much and i think like the the tw- 2005 was like where it had got to yeah and it was a polished version and then I think, you know, everything kind of changed from there. And, and for whatever reason, I just, that's the way I view it. Like in, in Canada here in Toronto, I think that 2000 was so awesome. But to have it kind of nationwide and North American wide, you kind of took that next step in 2005. Yeah. Big crowd, big TV broadcast, you know, Doc Emmerich there, one of the best to do it. And I can remember they did their homework, like the T, the, they were interviewing all the players a week in, in advance. You had to go down and meet with the crew. And 
they would ask you, like they were so well prepared, so organized. And, and, it, and I think the broadcast delivered that. And you hope like this is like watching the NHL on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. And you're left going, man, I hope it gets there. Yeah. So that's my take. Those are the I two for sure. Too. Yeah. Like I think, I think the 2000 game, the moment it created was, was bigger in terms of yeah. just like the actual, sure. the, the game and the setting of being the last professional sporting event Absolutely. at Maple Leaf Gardens. And, and I think in our, maybe in our lacrosse world bubble, I think it was just like a bigger moment, but I absolutely yep. agree with you at the same time is that 2005, because I can remember being sitting in the stands and being at that game. And I was sitting at the end of the rink. I think I was like the first row of the golds. And I could just remember just looking around and being like, holy crap, maybe this has actually arrived. Right. When everybody was going crazy at the end of the game, looking around and everybody like, you know, the towels in the air and it was bedlam in there. Right. It like was. it was crazy. And it was it was sold out. That's still the biggest crowd in NLL history was that game in 2005. And, uh, you know, you, it, 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 it was the perfect storm to them because yep. you know, you've got five, five championships in seven years, six trips to the final in seven years by the Rock. You've got uh, no hockey. You know, the like all the eyes were on this game, and like you say, NBC. So it's on in Canada and the U.S. National game, and and then, you know, hockey come everything comes back right the next year, which was the the big hurdle, right? Like, how do you overcome that? Because I know to to slightly shift the conversation a bit here, but how people have talked about, you know, if if we could only get on air right now and 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 put this game in front of people's eyes, like, you know, it would be the only thing to watch, right? But obviously circumstances prevent that regardless but then you also think it, it would be that little bubble right where we would have that little blip where we'd have all our eyes but then everything comes back kind of thing and that's the thing you always wrestle with is that you've you've got the established mainstream that you know you're it's going to always be difficult to compete or overtake something like that in our lifetime anyway <laughs> We may not see it, Mike. We I hate not. to burst the bubble. <laughs> yeah. So what, but, uh, any other yeah. takes from the game that, uh, nope, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Uh, we've, you know, we've chewed up a lot of people's times here talking yeah. about this game for sure, but, uh, uh, I'm glad we did it and invoked some great memories. And I was certainly happy to be a part of it. You know, looking back, how, you know, how grateful and lucky you are to, to be a part of something like that. Yeah. You, you take it for granted when you're young. Uh, and so happy to to have lived through that and be able to talk about it right now. It's it's amazing. Yeah, it's uh, it was truly awesome to go back and go through this uh, with everybody. And just want to remember everybody who's uh, stuck with us to the end here of the podcast this week that we were we are going to have a Facebook watch party on Wednesday night at seven o'clock, so everybody can uh, watch the game again together. And uh, we had a watch watch party a couple weeks ago, and it was pretty successful, and a lot of the fans enjoyed it. So we thought. Uh, on the day of 20th anniversary, May 6, 2020, we'll have a watch party and everybody can go back and uh, kind of remember where they were, watch the game again and uh, enjoy it with each other. And uh, all of Rock City can uh, reminisce for a couple of hours and kind of take some time away from all the stresses that uh, fill our days these days kind of thing. So we're looking forward to that. Let's relive it. Enjoy. Hope everybody enjoys it as much as I did. Be looking forward to bringing uh, the podcast to you in some form again. Uh, be safe. Thanks, Mike. All right. So that'll about wrap this uh, special edition of Toronto Rock Total Access up. Uh, thanks a lot for everybody uh, who took the time to stick with us through this. Thanks to Caleb Toth and Joe Bowen also for being our guests. And uh, Doily, thanks for uh, 
providing your insight on this as well. <laughs> in the meantime and in between time, for Colin Doyle, I'm Mike Hancock saying that's it. That's all. Another edition of Toronto Rock Total Access is over and done with. We will chat very soon.